We've had one, yes, but what about second breakfast? Welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. I am joined today by your host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Bill the Pony. <laughs> you know what? That's an honorable title. I will take it. Uh, I am joined today by Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. the Witch King of Angmar. Not so honorable. <laughs> and on today's show, we have <laughs> a very special so guest. Joining us to continue our review of The Fellowship of the Ring, please welcome Dan from Voice of Geekdom, a.k.a. Jan, you want to give him a title? Glorfindel! Yeah. <laughs> Dan, welcome to the show. <laughs> I, though I love Glorfindel. That's that perfect. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. It's an honor. So um, those who don't know, uh, you're a YouTuber, you, you make podcasts, um, do interviews, you have a great channel. Um, under the Voice of Geekdom name. You do a lot of Tol uh, Tolkien Lord of the Rings work. And we've really enjoyed the material you've put up, which is why we reached out to you and are really excited to have you on. We know you have, um, we'll have some really great insights into this particular uh, section of the film. So thanks for coming on. And why don't you sort of give everybody a, a little bit of a rundown on, you know, what your channel does, where your focus is, sure. and, um, and your love of Tolkien. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, as I say, as you say, I'm I'm largely a Tolkien YouTuber. I, I do have ambitions to do other things in the future, but I'm focusing on Tolkien as I'm building my audience for the time being. Um, and I'm mostly I'm known for covering the Silmarillion era content um, in quite a bit of depth. So I'm going through the Silmarillion um, almost chapter by chapter, but um, certain chapters that are a bit longer, I'm dividing up into multiple multiple parts and it's kind of a, a reader's guide for first-time readers the Silmarillion being notorious for being difficult for first-time readers to actually finish on their first attempt I thought nobody's really done that on YouTube and it's kind of an opportunity for me to um, get my name out there um, so it's a really fun series Silmarillion Explained it's called and um, I very often invite other creators, people in the Tolkien fandom to contribute readings for that as well. Um, so I've had, uh, I've had Robert from In Deep Geek. Uh, I've had my, my very good friend, Helen from The Clueless Fangirl. I've had, um, I've had Joystan from Men of the West doing Thingol. I've had a bunch of different people. Um, and I've actually recently just asked Jen to contribute for uh, chapter 16 um, the voice of Aradel, the white yes, lady I'm of the Noldor. Yes, I'm very excited about it. Uh, yeah, and she was not wholly unwilling, as the chapter <laughs> so says. Cool. So, so yeah, I'm just putting the, uh, the script <laughs> together for that. <laughs> um, so that'll be coming out hopefully in the coming oh, it's uh, weeks and months. Yeah, it's so cool that um, you have this collaborative element to um, your YouTube material. I mean, there are there are a number of great youtube content creators and they all have a little something a little different to offer and um the fact that you bring in other folks to add voices and just a, a little bit of a dramatization a dramatized element to the readings i think it adds something special um and of course it's it's so fun to get together with other youtube um, content creators and other youtube fans i mean the fact that we're getting to meet you for this podcast and talk to you and this is really kind of the best part of it for us and, and i imagine that you probably feel the same way Absolutely. Yeah. That's why that's why the idea came to me is just networking and meeting new people. And and I think it, it gives something to the audience as well. Um, 
it's a dramatization of selected elements. So it's not it's not an audio book. It's just right. it's just quotations, and then you know you get my explanation and you get my analysis, and I give some um, some little bit of history of the text as well in there. So I talk about different versions that Tolkien played around with over the course of the Legendarium's redrafting process, which obviously went on for decades, um, which yeah. is important to understand when you read the right. Silmarillion. So. Well, and, and looking at those different drafts, it, it you can approach it in different ways. You can approach it like, well, these other drafts, the things that were in there that were taken out, maybe that indicates the subtext, what Tolkien was really thinking about the finished draft, all that subtext, he's still thinking about that. So let's consider that sort of part of the canon in a way, and it informs what's going on. Or you could view it the other way. Hmm. He was thinking through it, and he deliberately decided not to include those details and thus we should consider them not part of the canon and so like having that conversation and being able to have the insight into his drafting process the fact that christopher tolkien gave us all that i don't think any novel in the history of the world is as uh, no, well documented in terms of the development and drafting process as the lord of the rings yeah yeah and the history of middle earth series gives us a unique insight into one of the defining geniuses of the 20th century and it's fairly unique i can't think of another example in literature um, where we have this much detail on this drafting process and and of course the the body of work itself is unique in and of itself mm -hmm. so right how did you discover tolkien in the first place my dad read uh the hobbit to me when i was i think about six or seven um Aww. and i when i finished i immediately took the book off him and read it myself um wow and then we did the same thing with the Lord of the Rings at about eight or nine. Um, so I was quite—I came to the Lord of the Rings quite early, well yeah, before the well before the movies came out. I was a teenager when the movies came out, and um, I think I read the Silmarillion. Actually, I attempted to read the Silmarillion for the first time <laughs> at twelve or thirteen, um, and I'm, basically I got the Beren and Luthien chapter and. I, latched onto that because I kind of knew that story already from the Lord of the Rings. Right. And then got completely lost mm -hmm. with all the, the old, the L's and the F names and everything yeah. else. Like a lot <laughs> of young people do when they discover the Silmarillion. Um, so yeah, just a long time fan and it's always been a part of my life since I was very, very young. Um, so the, the Baron and Luthien story, it sounds like is, is what grabbed you. And that was the part that you gravitated towards at first. Mm -hmm. And I think I would, guess i would wager a guess that most people experience the silmarillion in the same way that there are parts of it that grab them and parts of them that lose them at least on the first reading especially mm -hmm. if they came to it you know relatively early in life when they're a younger mm -hmm. reader um for me i i loved you know the first the first chapters the first sections that talk about the history of the valar and the creation of the world the music of the einar i mean for some reason that's what grabbed me like the deep deep mythology the origin story mm. um that sort and, of cosmogonical element of the story. Yes, yes, mm. uh, absolutely. And I, I love that. And um, I think that helped me get through some of the other stories that um, didn't always grab me as much at first. I mean, obviously, everything everything grabs me now. But appreciating the depth of that cosmology, that runs through every other story. And so, you know, there would be threads of that that I could, I could grab onto and, and it would keep me interested. You know, my first readings when I was an early teenager. Mm, got you. Jen, you got a couple of little get-to-know-you questions for Dan, right? Yes, I have some very silly questions um, that I'd love to there, ask you. There are no silly questions, Jen, just silly people. <laughs> true enough, Michael, true enough. Okay, Dan, if you could be any of the peoples from Lord of the Rings, what would it be and why? 
any of the peoples as in the the races or yes exactly i think i would like to probably be a hobbit because i think they have the best sort of standard of life and yes um live in the least danger um generally speaking yeah good Um, answer that's my answer as well I think that's most people's answer. (laughs) Um, You do get the sense that the hobbits live a good, normal, um, you know, clean life, don't you? Um, Very happy, blissful existence. I'm surprised that uh, neither of you said elf. I mean, come on, the elves. Doesn't everybody want to be an elf? And maybe not just the Noldor. They're pretty tragic, but there are plenty of elves back in Valinor who are just chilling and having a great time for thousands of years, totally protected, living living the high life. I was tempted, but uh, you said you said Lord of the Rings peoples, and mm. yeah, good point, good point, Dan. And you get the sense this a, guy knows what he's of, talking there's, about. There's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of sorrow uh, that builds up in the Elven psyche by the time we get to the Third Age. Yeah, and I think I think there's something there's something there's something to be said for the gift of men and for mortality as well. I'm not sure I'd want to be immortal. Right. Ah, uh, I I so resonate with that. It's too much time to exist. You'd see just too much. Um, Well, that was a great answer. So next question and last question before we dive into the news section. You're going into battle. So do you bring with you a sword, a bow, or an axe? Or something else. We'll do a sort of a free option. (laughs) Oh. um... Maybe a length of rope. I think I'm more of an axe wielder. I'm kind of, I'm kind of quite sort of sturdy, and I like to swing from the sh- from the shoulder. So, I think an axe is probably my weapon of choice. There you go. I sometimes think that I was born in the wrong millennium. <laughs> I would have been at home on the battlefield <laughs> with an axe back in the day. Oh man! All right. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. Jen, Jen, do you have an answer in mind for that? Um. Oh my goodness! I think probably a bow. I can't really see myself swinging a sword around, to be <laughs> perfectly honest. <laughs> I don't have the eyesight a... for a, for a bow myself. Yeah, actually, I'm right there with you. I, I would shoot the arrow and at just whatever fuzzy shapes are uh, nearest to me. Yeah. Well, you're going to like this next piece of news if you're an axe guy. I'm thinking axes, dwarves. Michael, you want to dive into the news? Yeah, so some news we haven't talked about on the show um, before. Relatively recently, uh, Fellowship of Fans, who we've mentioned many times before and who we follow religiously, um, great source of news and leaks for the show. He recently tweeted some news about the development uh, and filming of the Dwarvish scenes. So one piece is that uh, Robert Arameo, who is an elf, we know he's cast as an elf, and most people agree he's most likely going to be playing Elrond, he was on the dwarven sets, so we know that there are separate sets for the dwarves, the men, and the and the elves. And uh, he was seen on the dwarven sets and film scenes with the dwarves for the first two episodes of season one, which uh, are the episodes directed by J.A. Biona. We know that those are sort of standalone episodes that aren't, of course, they're related to, but not directly connected to whatever um, narrative is going to be featured in the subsequent episodes. So... That's a really interesting piece of news, and I'm kind of curious if you guys have any thoughts about what that could mean for the narratives that are going to be featured in those first two standalone episodes. Yeah, I think that I'm not as excited about this to be totally, to be perfectly, perfectly honest, because I'm wondering if they're making a bigger deal and expanding on something that's really not canon and not in the book at all. 
um, where this is coming from. And it just is not that interesting to me, if I'm being perfectly honest. Uh, so because I just you think I don't it indicates know. they'll be exploring a non-canon narrative line. A totally, uh, you know, pulling this out of thin air storyline where I don't think they necessarily need to do that. I think there really is enough in the books um, that you can you can really stay true to the story that's written. But for those who are fans of the dwarves like you, Michael, um, maybe this is exciting. It's just not that exciting for me. It's not that exciting for me either, but uh, my first thought was we don't know whether this is just one single shot in a montage or whether it's something much larger. It would be strange to me if we did focus largely on the dwarves in the first two episodes of a show that's set in the second age because there's not really a big role for them. Exactly. I, I'm, I've, you know, I've got an open mind about all of this. So, Well, so a couple of thoughts that come to mind for me is you know, now that we've seen the first teaser uh, set image, and of course, who knows exactly what that means? But it, you know, it is a shot of uh, the two trees. Um, you know, so we're seeing a shot from the years of the trees. So pre-first age. Does that mean that they're going to be exploring in a montage in some flashback sort of fashion, um, though that period in the early episodes? Maybe. Um, so does that mean that some of the shots with the dwarves in those first couple episodes could be first age dwarven sets? kingdoms i mean maybe <laughs> it we're totally in you know speculation territory here but um that would be interesting oh maybe we'll see the forging of narsil because that was forged by telkar the dwarven smith according to the lord of the rings right 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 that's a, that's an interesting idea not sure why elrond would be there if robert arameo is elrond but right um, right and that's so. I'm sort of floating this idea of you know us potentially seeing a first aged dwarven set, but that's probably unlikely if Elrond is on the set, just because he would have been so young and not engaged in a lot of that activity. But we have no reason to think he's really engaging with dwarves in the first age. Um, but you know, I, I think we're definitely going to see the Kazadum set. That's going to be the most primarily featured dwarven set, and I, there's no reason to think that Elrond hadn't visited Kazadum. I mean, you know, Region was close. Uh, in proximity, there was close relations between the elves of Eregion and the dwarves of Khazad-dûm. So to the extent that Elrond visited Eregion from time to time, interacted with with those elves, uh, maybe he ventured into Khazad-dûm. It wouldn't be an inconsistent narrative line for them to create. So um, it would be a sort of a fabrication, but they're going to be doing a lot of fabricating to fill out the plot here. I mean, just by necessity. So I th- I'm guessing we're going to be seeing Elrond in Khazad-dûm. So the next piece of news uh, here, so I don't know if there's a lot to comment on, but that dwarves will have amazing dragon scale armor um, up to 20 kilograms that the extras have to wear. So they're getting their workout in on the set and they're working hard. Um, But this is a piece that I like. This is good news to me. Most dwarven extras were 50 to 60 years old and potentially even older. And the reason I like that is that I think... um, and I'm blanking on the name, but the actor who played Gimli in The Lord of the Rings, he was around that age, and he, he just looked perfect to me. Gimli is just like the most perfect uh, representation in the films, uh, as what I imagine in the uh, from the books. Um, whereas you get to the Hobbit films, and a lot of the dwarves, they have much younger dwarves. It's, it's a less dwarvish look, in my opinion. And so I'm glad that they're sort of sticking with the older extras, because I think that's kind of how dwarves should look. Yeah, I totally agree. 
Um, and I love this next bit of news that the Dwarven King is said to look strikingly similar to Tormund from Game of Thrones. And it was a running joke on set about the similarity with the Game of Thrones character. So it seemed to be that the Dwarven King was based on Tormund's look. So I, I loved Tormund from Game of Thrones. And so I'm totally on board with him resembling that character um, in this new show. I thought he added a lot of comic relief. I thought he was great. And that look fits perfectly with the dwarf aesthetic. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah, he was a character who I think was improved from the book version in, in, game, in the Game of Thrones adaptation, personally. Because that right. actor really did bring that role to life and brought a lot of charisma to it. Yeah, I think people may have a lot of different opinions about different characters from Game of Thrones and the way they were portrayed, but I think everybody universally enjoyed the Tormund character and the way that actor uh, approached approached that character. And, you know, the look is what we may be getting, the same look. And I think his look is perfect for a dwarf. So I, I like that to the extent that informs the way that they're going to be portraying dwarves. I think that is great. Continuing on, there are scenes from the first two episodes that will show dwarves climbing up a mountain slash ravine. And this, I think, goes along with uh, something that uh, Fellowship previously tweeted, which is a dwarven... I think you said a dwarven king or a dwarf. There was a scene that they had filmed where a, uh, a dwarf had fallen down like a mine shaft and big, you know, pieces of the set, big set pieces fall on top of, of the dwarf. So I think that's probably all part of the same thing. Again, I think this probably relates to Casa Doom. Um, you know, it's probably a ravine with, you know, underneath the mountain, within the mountain. That would be my guess. But, you know, Dan, you have a really good... Um, probably a much better understanding of the geography of Middle Earth than we do. And maybe are there any other locations this could be? You say tumbling down a ravine was, yes. was the word on this. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, your mind naturally goes to the Misty Mountains, doesn't it? So I would think, sure. rather, but um, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's all speculation, but, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's fun to imagine the different. I mean, I hope I'm excited to see Casa Doom, but, you know, I'm just hungry uh, for and maybe greedy, but I want to see as many different locations within Middle Earth as possible. I mean, I, I want to see everything. And so to the extent we can get a couple different dwarven locations, a couple different dwarven kingdoms portrayed, um, even if there's not, I, not a lot I of would, focus. I would like to see the remnants of Belagost or Nogrod um, still existing within the Blue Mountains close to Lindon, uh, because that was in the same region. So if we have a neighboring dwarven territory there, that could be interesting. I love that um, idea. And, and it's not it doesn't go against canon necessarily. So um, that's also a possibility. Um, but as far as the bits of news that have been released, it's really hard to begin to speculate with what we know. There's so much that we don't know. There's so many more questions than there are answers at the moment. So Right, absolutely. Um, all right, well, one last little bit. This isn't really about the show, but for fans of the films... Uh, and I swear this isn't an ad, but I think that people might want to know there is going to be the Middle Earth six film Ultimate Collector's Edition 4K Ultra AH, HD that's going to be available in October. So if you want to have one, you know, box set of the theatrical and extended editions uh, in, you know, new 4K HD. Um, and apparently it also includes some never before sort of behind the scenes type footage. So that's uh, that's an incentive for people who already have these films to get a new get a new copy, but those are available in October. I will probably be picking that up because I actually don't have a copy of the Hobbit films, which I need to have 
you know, pick up both the theatrical and extended for when we cover them on this podcast. So I'll probably be picking this up. Oh, I'm all over this. Um, I love, I have all the extended versions, but when I moved, I lost uh, the Return of the King extended version edition. So I will definitely be purchasing this. Do we know what the price point is? I'm curious. One million dollars. One million dollars. It's it's a little pricey. I don't remember exactly, but it's, you know, it's a hundred something bucks. So it's maybe not for the casual fan. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, if we get more insight into, I really love the insight into the making of the films. I love that so much. So if we get a little more insight into that and more interviews with the elusive Philippa Boyan, you know, I'm, I'm so into that. I'm, I'm really curious about her in particular. I know she doesn't really do interviews, but I understand that she did do just a few that were recorded. So that would be my hope is that we get her um, in, in some of this commentary because um, I know they made a deliberate decision that she would be out of the limelight. Uh, for the sake mm-hmm. of their family and and to keep their life very private, um, but I just I really love her insight in the director's commentary, which is the one of the only times you hear her voice. So yeah, my hope is that we'd get a little more from her because she was such a huge integral par- part of this process of making all of those films, and you really don't hear her voice all too often. So it remains to be seen, but I will definitely uh, pick up a copy, and um, hopefully we hear from her. Alright, so the film scenes we are covering in today's episode culminate in the attack on Weathertop by the Black Riders, which features one of the more ominous and effective musical themes in the whole trilogy. So before we even get into our film discussion, let's take a short break and feature an interview with our friend and resident musical expert, Jordan Rennells, coming to us all the way from the Music of Middle Earth podcast to tell us a thing or two about the Nazgul's theme. Hey, Jordan. Hello. Glad to be back. So this isn't the first scene where we've heard this theme, but it really, they really lay it on thick. We're, we're drenched in it in this scene. Uh, It's ominous. It's scary. Uh, Just like the shriek of the Nazgul, which we talked about in the last episode. uh, This musical theme is something that I I think is, if not as iconic, it's, it's pretty iconic and you really associate it with the Nazgul. What can you tell us about this score? Well, there's a lot of, you know, it's crazy to see the amount of detail that goes into just one, you know, relatively small scene, you could say like this. It's not that it's not impactful. It's just that it's in terms of time, it's not that long. Um, and there's actually three, maybe four themes happening at the same time here. Oh, wow. So we have the powerful Nazgul theme, which it's hard to even call it a theme because it's just like the choir chanting. That's one element of it. But underneath that is this, it's called the descending third theme. And it's the low brass and woodwinds and whatnot that are doing this kind of descending stepwise motion underneath. And you hear it reference the ring wraiths and anything really to do with Mordor. That's what it's referring to. Right. So that's kind of the buildup, right? You start to hear this kind of, um, walking motion underneath in the low end. So that's kind of like your buildup. And then, you know, the Wraith choir comes in uh, to jolt us just like the, the scream does. So there's a lot of stuff happening. And what I found was really interesting about this scene was how the low brass comes in to hint towards Mordor and it builds up with the strings playing some things. And then 
the Wraith theme comes in, and all of that builds up till when Frodo puts the ring on. Right. And when, when he puts the ring on, the score pretty much cuts, and it's almost all sound design at that point. Right. It's wind, and it's you know, flapping and stuff like that. And it's really interesting how the play between the score and sound design happens in the scene because it builds up so intensely and then just cuts straight to only sound design. So we really kind of feel the the visceral feeling that he has in that moment because the score is gone. Um, not that it because was all the tension, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because all the tension that the score is creating, this almost like aggressive, violent tension. It's you know, Frodo is feeling this inexorable urge to put on the ring. And so when he finally puts it on, all that tension is released in a way because now right. he's succumbed to the call of the ring rays, the call of the ring, and now he's in this other world. And so the tension from the music cuts out and that totally makes right. sense. I, I hadn't caught that, but after right. you yeah. say it, it makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely uh, really interesting to see um, how much intensity builds up and the trumpets and the other brass instruments are doing flutter tonguing which means that they're just really rapidly going between notes. And if you listen to it, like I said in the last episode, if you listen to just the score, you can hear that there's a lot of just clashing notes. They're just mm. clashing underneath, right? You have the themes doing their thing, recognizable stuff, but layers underneath that are just clashing notes, right? So just right. building up tension. The strings are doing like these crazy scales that just ascend you know, like with Sando no, all the way up. Yeah, yeah, like no real rhyme or reason to it in relation to the other stuff. It's Which is like pulled straight out of a 1950s vampire exactly, movie. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that all builds up, and then Ring goes on, just sound design. And then when he finally pulls the ring off, that's when we get a bit of Strider music coming back. Right. To uh, kind of save the day or cue to save all the day that happens, which is really, a really nice way to end it for sure. Right. Now, the you mentioned a choir. The name that kept coming into my head was like Gregorian chant. I know that's not a Gregorian chant, what we're hearing, but is there a name for the, the type of choral singing that we're hearing? Okay, so what's happening with the choral? Uh, group that's doing this this part for the ring wraiths is they actually have uh, some texts that Philip Boyens wrote and that's called the revelation of the ring wraiths and so there's actually texts that they're chanting there and it's it's something that's described as monorhythmic which means that it doesn't really have a contour that you can recognize right it doesn't flow back to itself in any way that like, you know, when you hear concerning hobbits or any of the Shire themes, it has an arc to it that you can kind of predictably feel when it's going to end and therefore when it would restart. Right. And this just doesn't have that. It doesn't, it takes away any um, musical cue that might comfort you. Right. So it's really impactful. It's, monorhythmic so it's hard to tell when it's going to start or end and as it as time goes by you know we start with these kind of chords that get more and more clustered as they go 
So we kind of add more and more notes to them as it builds, and that just adds to more and more tension, more and more discomfort as it builds, right? But because of that rhythm thing, you still don't know like when's the end of this. You know, when when is this going to be done? <laughs> it's hard to tell that kind of thing, right? So they're layering on the notes, which adds increased dissonance with every layer. Yeah, exactly. And and then there is no rhythmic uh, predictability, which I'm sure creates a sort of a subtle disorientating feeling. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of like layer and thought to go into something that, you know, the listener might just interpret as like, you know, two shots, two strong chords that happen every now and then when the Nazgul show up, but it's all, you know, so well thought out. And the fact that there is that text underneath it, that they're actually um, chanting a poem and having this kind of rhythm that it's hard to tell when it's going to end, but it's kind of like uh, ceremonial in its approach. Right. right. It's almost like a march almost, you know, it's got that feel to it. Um, it just lends into what the Nazgul are and their history a little bit more as right. well. Yeah, it feels like, it feels ancient mm-hmm. somehow. Like, it, you know, it invokes this sort of, ancient like you said ceremonial quality um like you've you know you're being assaulted by an ancient evil which is really what the nazgul are right um it it kind of feels like something out of you know the temple of doom uh you know indiana jones do you happen to know what uh, you said that philip aboyans wrote the the words do you know what they are yeah i let me give one second i have it i will pull it up here Okay, so I do have the translation up. I'm not going to try the black speech version of it. Uh, <laughs> oh, but, come on. Uh, <laughs> Give us your best black speech. <laughs> the translation of the poetry for the revelation of the ring wraiths is we renounce our maker, we cleave to the darkness, we take unto ourselves the power and glory. Behold, we are the nine, the lords of unending life whoa so there you go that's what's happening in those nazgul uh, choral themes that is wild and do you know whether that text was drawn from anything in the legendarium in particular it doesn't ring a bell it's it sounds new but yeah I th- i'm pretty sure it's new it, it says that it was written by philippa boyens okay um, in the annotated scores you know we have the footsteps of doom let's say and that it'll it'll say text from J.R.R. Tolkien and then ad- adapted by Philippa Boyens. But if she wrote it, then it just says text by. Okay, so then she definitely wrote this, and uh, that's really interesting. And we renounced our maker. Um, I mean, they must be saying you know basically we renounce Eru is what that must be referring yeah. to. Yeah, that's pretty great. Just, that that much detail going into uh, something that. You know, how many people, first of all, can even decipher that that what the black speech is. And second of all, go through and 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 translate it like that. But now yeah. it's really cool, because if you rewatch the movies now, you can have that in mind when you hear it and know right. what those what they're what they're singing, what they're right. chanting there, which is crazy, adds a whole other layer to it. Right. Well, and there are a number of places in the films where there's kind of indecipherable speech going on in the background i mean even in this very scene when frodo puts on the ring 
uh, and you said you know the sound design there's all the there's the flapping and the wind but there's also kind of a whispering going on and I you know I I slow it down I pause it I you know try and listen to see if I can figure out what they're saying um, but it you can't tell no matter how hard you listen and it amazes me that devotion to detail that they would clearly yeah. somebody wrote what that is that I'm sure there's that's a source the somewhere. That's, that's what I was just going to say is that, you know, what that, what that actually is exists somewhere because someone didn't just make it up as random noise, you know, like it was definitely right. thought out. And I think, you know, most people know of that uh, incident where they were writing runes or something like that in Moria mm-hmm. and someone wrote like a joke in the runes and you know someone caught it and they were like no you can't do that you got to fix it right because people will actually be able to yeah you can't mess around because people will translate it and they'll they'll be able to tell right that that level of dedication is uh yeah and you need full team buy-in because you know you're going to go to somebody on your team and you're going to say okay i want you to write something it's going to be in the script but no one will ever be able to tell what it is. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, won't exactly. be. It'll be there in the background. It'll be indecipherable. But I really want you to try hard but, and make it something yeah, good. Yeah, try hard, and it'll be really good. <laughs> and yeah, that's why I really recommend these annotated scores because uh, at the end of there's one for each movie, and at the end it lists all the poetry that's used and um, has both translations of it, which is really, really, really cool. Yeah, that's that's great stuff, Jordan. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed hearing Jordan talk about Howard Shore's incredible score, then go check out his podcast, The Music of Middle Earth Podcast, which he spends the entire time talking about the sound design and Howard Shore's score from the Lord of the Rings films. So check that out if you enjoyed what you heard today. Uh, and if you're a fan of the Star of Star Wars, check out Jordan's newer podcast, Star Wars Sound Design. Now let's head back to our episode in progress. All right, so let's jump into the films here. And, uh, you know, we got a couple things. You know, this is a watch party. And uh, even though it is 11 a.m. where we are, we are still down for, in true watch party fashion, we've got a bottle of, I've got a bottle of Malbec here. And uh, Dan, you suggested this as a drink. I think you've got a bottle there too. Is Malbec your favorite red wine? Generally speaking, it's my go-to, yes. Um, And... It's definitely in my podcast drink of choice because I I record a lot um, with my colleague, the Clueless Van Girl, Helen, who I believe you guys have also reached out to feature on a future episode. Um, yes, yeah, and I'm so about that. and so I always drink wine with her because this is you know this is our time to socialize as well because um, she's a good friend. Um, so yeah, I, I usually drink wine and I usually drink Malbec when I'm, when I'm speaking Tolkien. So it just seems right to me for when you said that you'd usually have a, a thing that you all consume together, that's the natural suggestion. Um, yeah, that's great. It's what gets you in the mood, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, there's nothing better than wine for talking about literature, really. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Although in this, in the book, in the chapters that we're covering, 
it, there is a section. I thought about drinking tequila today because Glorfindel brings a clear liquid and it is liquor. It specifies that it is liquor and gives it to the hobbits. And that is what revives them. <laughs> so I did think about bringing tequila, but it's a slightly too early for that today. Um, <laughs> tequila might revive you. I'm pretty sure it would. It would tequila would probably out. revive me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, wine's, wine's a good call. And Malbec. Nice full-bodied Malbec. I don't think I've ever had a Malbec before. I mean, I've had plenty of red wine. I, I got to be honest, though. I don't think uh, it's usually Pinot Noir, sometimes Merlot that we drink here in the house. Um, so I was like, oh, Malbec. Wow, I, I haven't had that. So let me give it a try. I like Pinot Noir as well. That's another one that I like. Mm-hmm. Not too much of a wine snob. I, I don't know too much about different grapes and things. But Right. No, I'm, I'm the same, which I would rather not be a wine snob because if you're a wine snob, all of a sudden you can't enjoy the cheaper bottles of wine. You have to get the good <laughs> stuff to even enjoy yourself. <laughs> oh, dear. I prefer yes. to keep my habits nice and cheap. Well, so, um, Dan, you have said you are game for our um, the One Breath Summary. You're going to summarize everything we're, we're covering today, which um, we're picking up around uh, an hour and two minutes, um, and which is where uh, Frodo wakes up or takes off the ring in Bree. Um, and... At the very least, we're going to get through the battle on Weathertop. And so you're going to take one big breath and tell us everything that happens. Okay, so I, <laughs> I, I am a smoker. I will preface this by saying I am a smoker. So this task does not play to my natural strengths. Um, I have been practicing this and, you know, voiceovers are my thing. I'm a YouTuber, so I'll do my best. <laughs> but we believe in you. Here goes. Frodo takes the ring off and looks around before the creepy hooded nicotine addict grabs him and chokeslams him into a wall. The stranger manhandles him into an empty room, burns his fingers on a candle like a badass, and without a hint of irony asks Frodo whether he is scared. Sam and the hobbits bravely burst in and threaten Strider with their bare fists, a candlestick and a chair. The Nazgul show up and burst through the gates, but Strider has done a switcheroo with the hobbits, and the Nazgul stab empty beds full of pillows, which pretty much calls their intelligence as hunters into question. Strider gives the audience the Nazgul exposition, then we get a travelling montage and the most memed scene in the history of cinema, Second Breakfast. Before the resumption of montage and leading into extended edition time, Strider giving an extremely abbreviated version to the tale of Tenuvial from the Silmarillion, <laughs> which Peter Jackson didn't have full rights to. Brief scene where Saruman chit-chats with Sauron and starts chopping trees down. Big mistake. Cut back to Frodo, Strider and gang where we finally reach Weathertop and Strider scouts ahead before we cut to the hobbits making breakfast in the middle of the night. What is it with these guys and breakfast? And then the Nazgul attack and stabby, stabby, stabby before Strider shows up again and saves the day. Bravo! So obviously, that was not one breath because I (laughs) ran out of breath, but... um... But it was wildly entertaining, so thank you. <laughs> it's fantastic. And You're I welcome. so agree about the breakfast comment. I do love breakfast, so I kind of mm. get it. Oh, yeah. um, but there is, like, it is mentioned so many times in the scenes that we're covering. It's kind of, it's kind of like a theme at this point. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, uh, everybody knows that scene. If you've been on the internet at any point in the last 20 years, you know that scene without even watching the movies. <laughs> yeah, and um, actually, Jen, so we got our, you know, notes here. 
and Jen, I think you put in your notes that exact same comment, the most I memed scene. I put the exact history. same comment. Great minds yeah. think alike. Yeah, the definitely. most meme scene in history. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's between that and the Boromir. Um, one does not simply. I think. Yes, yes. one does yeah. not from simply. the same movie. You know, <laughs> like that. Those two moments have got to be the most. Got to be the most meme uh, scenes yes. in cinema. From the best of the three films, according to Michael and I. I think these films almost invented memes to an extent. Hmm. Yeah, because they came out yeah. kind of at the beginning of meme culture, you know, or I don't want to say kind of early internet, you know, early internet meme mm. culture. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, so let's dive into that, the first scene and really get into it because there's there's a lot to talk about here, I think. Um, a lot of things that I love, a lot of things that are different. Actually, Jen, why don't you uh, describe this first scene, just a quick summary of the part that we're going to discuss next. Sure. So the hobbits burst in to the room and Strider informs them that they can no longer wait for the wizard because they are coming. coming. Then the Nazgul burst through the gate, flattening the poor gatekeeper and storm the prancing pony with swords drawn. Uh, We cut to the hobbits sleeping and by all accounts, it looks as though they're doomed. The wraiths surround them and repeatedly plunge their swords into the bed. They pull off the covers and it is revealed that they have been tricked. The hobbits left decoy stuffed beds in another room. Meanwhile, they watch the scene from a different room while Aragorn fills them in on the tragic and terrifying existence of the Nine, the slaves to Sauron's will. Then Sauron the Deceiver gave to them nine rings of power. Blinded by their greed, they took them without question, one by one, falling into darkness. So I love this scene. It's so gothic and horror film and scary. And uh, I love that the the audience is tricked. So this is one thing I want to note that cannot be achieved in a book that can be achieved in a film is you trick the audience. We don't know what's going on. And then we're like, and then it's revealed. Oh, thank goodness. That that deep breath you take when you realize that the hobbits haven't been stabbed in their sleep. So this is sort of I love this scene because I think it's one of the more thrilling scenes of the movie. Yeah, I and, and I'll say that even though I had read the book many times before seeing the film, when I was sitting in the theater as a kid, I was still tricked. I was thinking to myself, are they going to kill some of the hobbits here? Like because, you know, you don't know how faithful they're going to be. And maybe that was, and there are rumors, right? That um, early on in the development, Peter Jackson was told you got to kill one of the hobbits. You know, one of the hobbits has to die. So there was pressure in Hollywood to change the, the plotting significantly, even to kill a hobbit. Um, But of course, fortunately they didn't do that. It was just a trick, but it was so effectively filmed that even I, who knew how the story was supposed to go, was holding my breath and going, are the Nazgul seriously going to kill the hobbits here. Um, that's, I think that's how well the, the cross cutting came off. And it gave you that moment of peril that um, we don't have because we don't have the, the Barrow down scene. So I right. feel like, mm-hmm. I feel like there's, they bring that element in to an extent, not that it's a, you know, a deliberate um, callback to that, but it, it gives you that moment in a more streamlined fashion where we don't have to go to the Barrow downs, but we, we have something there. Um, in the books, of course, the Nazgul do attack, but they don't get as close as, as they do in the films. Um, well, and I want to I want to get into that a little bit, because in the books, the way I read the books is that it is ambiguous about whether the Nazgul actually make an open attack. And I think actually um, I think there's 
more support for the idea that it wasn't the Nazgul that attacked the Prancing Pony. It is um, Bill Fernie and the the what is it? The Southern Spy, the, you know, the Squintide Southerner. He's called yeah, Squintide Southerner. Yeah, and that the Nazgul had sort of brought under their employ, you know, through fear. And so the Nazgul are obviously involved. They organize the attack, but they're not the actual ones getting into the room and doing the attack. They're having men do it for them, um, which I think in the books. So you pointed this out in your, in your um, one breath summary there, Dan, that the idea that the Nazgul would be in the room and actually think that these piles of hay are living, breathing Mm. people makes no sense. Cause we know we hear elsewhere like in the appendices or somewhere that they can sense the the Nazgul can sense blood and they they are jealous of it and Aragorn says it in the book. Oh, that's right. Yeah, actually, in yeah. This, in this Aragorn does tell us that the Nazgul do have particularly bad eyesight in the books. Mm-hmm. So right. I th- I think it does make a little bit of sense in that in that sense. Because... Well, it makes sense that they can't see, but they would be able to feel whether or not there are people in there. I think, and certainly they'd be able to feel whether or not the ring was in the room. Yeah, and one thinks that they'd be able to hear Pippin snoring as well. But <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, let's let's. Ba- I want to back it up just a little bit because um, I don't want to gloss over the fact that this is really the first introduction we get to Aragorn. And we see him mm-hmm. briefly in the shadows. You know, we see his his outline, his stubbled jaw. Right. So that those are the very first scenes we get. But here is where he is actually introduced as a character. He is Strider. He's interacting with our main character. Um, and I, you know, obviously there, there are some differences in terms of dialogue, but I actually really think that this is fairly faithful um, in terms of the details of the scene. Um, and obviously, I, I think Viggo Mortensen does a really good job. As you said, like a badass, he's putting out candles with his fingers. I mean, you know, that's the tough ranger character coming through those little details. I can avoid being seen if I wish. Wish. Oh, so good. <laughs> It's so good. I am, you know what I'm bummed that they left out though is in the books when the the whole exchange where he reads the letter from Gandalf, which is hilarious. Mm. That is a hilarious letter. Yeah. <laughs> um, I miss that, and I miss the hobbits. You know, really deciding: is this guy on our team? Is he good? Is he bad? Who is he? And I miss that whole evaluation uh, because there is a Shakespeare reference in there. I'm convinced it's a Shakespeare reference Mm. um, where the quote, they say, I think the enemy would look fairer and feel fouler. And Strider replies, oh, are you implying that I look foul and feel fair? And essentially, yes, that is the case. And that is a line straight out of none other than Macbeth. Which you are uh, you are playing Lady Macbeth in an upcoming yes, and play, I know that um, yes, uh, correct. But I know that um, Tolkien famously didn't was not a fan of uh, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Although um, I I want to investigate that a little further because I'm not convinced that that wasn't a passing comment. But I digress. Um, we do get that we do get that line later. They move it to um, after they've left the prancing pony and they're walking. That's the true. Wilderness. They do include it, but that's just in the extended version. It's totally cut from the theatrical version. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Um, so I I miss that whole exchange where the hobbits are really uh, you know sizing him up. Mm-hmm. But for the sake of the film, I do see why they had to kind of speed that up and and move things along and. Uh, well, and they had to do that because they completely changed Gandalf's narrative. You know, the reason that he's not there, um, you know, they cut out the letter altogether. They cut out the the timing of, you know, why, why he goes to see Saruman in the first place. They cut out Radagast. And 
and all of that stuff that happens behind the scenes is cut out and changed a little bit. Yes, yeah, so the Gandalf stuff um, in this movie is some of my biggest problems with this movie in terms mm-hmm. of stuff that they've cut that makes the plot make less sense. Um, not that it's a big, huge sticking point, and not that I don't enjoy the scenes that we do get, but when you start to think about it more, it does present some problems. Um, it makes Gandalf seem a little bit more, uh, obs- you know, obsequious and uh, mm-hmm. deferential to Saruman. You know, you get no inkling that he's been suspicious of Saruman for a while, which he is in the book. That scene, you know, I'm going to go see Saruman, the head of our order. He's like, he's both uh, powerful and wise. He'll know what to do, you know. And, that just makes you feel like Gandalf isn't in control and he desperately needs help, which cinematically is effective. You want your main characters to, to not want know what to do sometimes. Um, but in the book, it, it, it is just different. Um, so I, I understand why people have an issue with those changes. Uh, but to your point, Jen, I think it in some way adds to the um, suspense for the hobbits because in the book, they don't know who Aragorn is. And they're concerned for about 30 seconds. And then they get a letter that basically tells them, okay, trust this guy. You know, Gandalf tell, tells hobbits, all right, you know, trust Aragorn. And there's this great uh, uh, piece of poetry that really tells them it's someone they can trust. Um, taking that out of the film means that the hobbits continue to be unsure whether or not they can trust this guy. They're not being told by Gandalf, trust this guy. They have to make up their own mind. And um, they continue to be unsure as they go along. Because it's cut out in the extended edition, some of those scenes, that nuance may be lost on initial viewers. But taking out the letter, which clarifies everything, I think adds to the tension for our hobbits. And the poem that we get in the book, uh, it gives us some hints that there's more to this character as well. Uh, I, when I read first read the book, I, I did figure out that he was some kind of you know, heir to some sort of throne before I even knew what Gondor was because all that is gold does not glitter. You get that, you get that hint and you also, you get little bits about, um, he talks about the men of Numenor and stuff later on, um, in the book. And you kind of figure it out by the time you get to Rivendell, even though Frodo doesn't figure it out until Gandalf tells him, I think as a reader, there's a dramatic irony there. Right. Right. So Jackson stretches that, um, the suspense out a little bit by keeping you more in the dark for a little bit longer. And um, I, I can't, you know, I never watched the films without knowing who Aragorn was. So I never felt the suspense, right? Cause I always knew the second that Viggo Mortensen is on screen, I'm like, Oh, that's Aragorn, you know, son of Arathorn. But uh, I, I'd be curious to talk to people who watched only the films, how they felt in the first time, you know, how long did they not realize that Strider was a King, you know, sort of a, a Royal character. Yeah, because he does come, you know, he is presented to us as this sort of a dark figure, mysterious, kind of shaggy, and it's only revealed slowly that this is a guy with a heart of gold, he's an heir to the throne, etc. Um, but I think we should move on to the Midwater Marshes scene. Um, because I, have, we get... I have one more thing I want to bring up before we move okay. on to the Midwater Marshes, and I, th- I think it's something that we're going to touch on, certainly when we get to Weathertop, but it's... The portrayal of the Nazgul as physical enemies that that engage with their adversaries in a very physical way. Um, In the film, you know, we see the Nazgul, they ride down the gate, you know, smash the gatekeeper. They're storming the Prancing Pony in almost a military way. You see them coming through the door with swords drawn, 
Barlam and Butterbur. The poor gatekeeper being flattened. So unnecessary. I know. Funny and sad, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he was rude to the hobbits, you know. You know in, 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 the book, in the book, that gatekeeper does actually come back around later on. And we learn that he he joins a gang with Bill Fernie's guys. Right. And they're kind of outlaws that try to take over Bree. Right. Um, we get that whole storyline later on when the, the party is traveling back to the Shire. Um, right interestingly um but he's yeah he's a bit part in the in the films um, but very you know, very re- memorable bit part actually i, I yeah, like that very... scene with that actor and the scene of the nazgul sort of slipping in and you get sort of a close-up on uh, barlman butterbur's face very scared while the swords are going through that's one of my favorite shots i really love it um but i want to point out the fact that it is very different in the way that it portrays the nazgul because the nazgul actually and we already mentioned this they didn't attack the prancing pony physically they wouldn't it's not their the way that they're using their power at this point and all the descriptions that tolkien gives us um with this first encounter and also later in weathertop they're you know shadowy spirits that are you know menacing and they create fear but they're not you know we're going to see a big sword battle with aragorn they're not doing sword battles right now you know they're they're shadowy menacing figures very little uh combat with the nazgul in any of the books actually Right. We're gonna in uh, Weathertop as as well later on. We'll get to that, but there's not really the same kind of combat that we get in the in the films. Right. But that's that's you know that's the films for you. They do action movie it up a bit, um, right, as they, right? As they should. And yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it surprises me a little bit because Jackson does have a history, or did you know at that time he had a history and was known for being sort of a horror type director. So I I. I would have thought that maybe he would have embraced the idea. These are kind of ghostly figures. Let's show them as like apparitions. Um, but he makes a different choice. He says, you know, I'm going to definitely show them as almost as having physical bodies. I like that so much better because we can conceptualize of it so much better. The threat is more real and mm. tangible. Yeah, it's very it's very difficult to film a growing sense of dread in your characters right. in that way. You know, you can't re- you can describe it on the page in a way that you can't show it. Yeah. screen it's hard to visualize the unseen right that would be the challenge <laughs> the the spiritual element of of everything right, right. you get this the, the same thing applies i think to the balrog scene later on which i'm not going to go into depth about because you'll cover that in a future episode but the balrog is seen with gandalf in the books is very much more of a spiritual battle as well right i think that was one of the major challenges of adapting these is that it's very hard to depict a lot of these concepts. So they had to be changed in order for the audience, a a film audience to really get it and get the threat, even though it's not really exactly what Tolkien was going for. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think you're, you guys are right on about that. All right. So at this point, Strider leads the hobbits out of Bree and into the wild. He tells them he is taking them to Rivendell to the house of Elrond. The hobbits try to stop for second breakfast in the me- most meme quote in history. We do not stop till nightfall. What about breakfast? We've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? And uh, the travelers traipse through rough terrain and muddy marshes, stopping to camp in the bog. And in the extended edition, Frodo wakes to Aragorn, singing in the night of an elf maiden. So we already talked about uh, this a little bit. Um, you know, the way that we we lose some of the discussion between the hobbits about whether or not they can trust Aragorn. I love that scene. But the main addition that we get in the extended edition, I think is worth talking about, is 
Baron and Luthien and the reference to Baron and Luthien and bringing in some of that Silmarillion material. I think it's a beautiful scene. Um, I have my thoughts about whether or not it was right to cut it, but I'm interested in hearing whether you guys have impressions. Man, I love those. The scenes where Aragorn sings to me are so Mm. powerful and so much more true to the books. And so I wish it wouldn't have been cut. And I wish he would have sang a little bit more because him singing at the end of Return of the King is one of my favorite scenes of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think song was so important um, in these stories. So it's a shame. It's a shame that this was cut. And it's a shame we don't get Baron and Luthien's story at all in this. Um, I see why we couldn't time-wise but but it is like one of the central stories in the whole legendarium (laughs) so yeah it's a shame i'm glad that there was a little uh peekaboo of it even though it was just in the extended films though at least yeah uh as obviously people know i'm a big silmarillion fan um i suspect that there are probably legal reasons why they couldn't tell us a bit more about Beren and luthien but also there are definitely editorial reasons why you wouldn't want to tell too much of that story um i think um going back actually to the spiritual element of the nazgul fighting as well Mm -hmm. in the books we also get the story of beren and luthien told to us by aragorn um he he recites a poem or i think he sings a song right um, and then we get a kind of prose version of the larger story because the poem is just about the meeting of beren and luthien in the woods Um, But there's a reason why he tells us that in the book, because he's preparing the hobbits to face the Nazgul, who were closing in at that point. And my sense of that, I don't know if what you're reading of that is, you guys, but my sense of that scene in the book is that the reason why he's telling them that story is because he wants to give them hope and he wants to prepare their spirits in order to face the spiritual onslaught of the Nazgul. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And that's a wonderful uh, interpretation. That's an angle I hadn't really um, thought through. But of course, it makes absolute sense. I mean, Aragorn, you know, one of his names is Estelle, Hope, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, that is his kind of role in this world in in a way. And if you look for those moments throughout the reading uh, of the entire novel, you will see all kinds of wonderful little references where he is bringing hope to people. He is saying things that give hope in subtle ways. And although I didn't consider that in, in the context of him telling, uh, reciting the Baron and Luthien story, I think you're absolutely right that that is part of the function that's being served when he when he brings that up. When I, you know, the reason that I think it's being referenced, the meta reason, you know, why Tolkien would include it, one to give these little glimpses into the larger history. Every now and then he drops these nuggets, right? So for the reader, it creates a sense of depth and, you know, by giving little insights into larger mythology. But also it is a hint uh, that you don't, the reader doesn't get at all at first. But at the end of the novel, you realize that Aragorn has this relationship with Arwen and there's a parallel Mm. between his relationship with Arwen and the story of Baron and Luthien. That's something you can, that's a connection that you only make at the end, but that's really, really enjoyable. And so on a second read, you realize how meaningful the story is to him and for him to talk about it in such depth to the hobbits. Um, you can imagine it being sort of, there's a lot of sort of a sea of emotions going on inside of Aragorn as he's telling the story. Uh, and so that's yeah. the element that I, I think about. Michael, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I thought of. Um, and And also, I love that this glimpse into Aragorn's psyche in that he's always tortured by the 
relationship with Arwen and that he knows how much she's going to have to give up to to be with him, to have that relationship. And so the fact that he's always sort of mulling it over and this is the first time we see him grappling with it is really striking. Although I love Dan, your interpretation as well. That is also something that hadn't occurred to me. So I can I can see that. There's several layers to that. Um, I think, Michael, you're absolutely right. That there's a meta reason why Tolkien tells us that story at that point, and that is that he didn't think that he would ever get the Silmarillion published, and that's right. why he's starting to throw little bits of, um, of Silmarillion lore in there. I think this is actually, in the books, this is the first big moment of Silmarillion content that actually ties the Legendarium all together, really. I, th- um, I think you're right. I mean, there are references to Numenor, like, you know, there are phrases. Yes. Uh, like, like, and but and Calicon the Black is mentioned in chapter mm-hmm. two. I think that's the first small one. But um, but this is the first time that where we get a whole poem, quite a lengthy poem yeah. in the book, um, which is a, Silmar- a key Silmarillion story. And also, I do want to say, I absolutely love the poem in the book. Sorry, I'm talking more about the book than I'm talking about the film, but... But I absolutely love that poem because it, yeah. I love the I love the rhyme scheme of it. It's so intricate, and it's such a beautiful meter it's as beautiful. well. It it's rolls off the tongue in such a great way. And then there you get the ironic line from Aragorn when he finishes and says, "Oh, but this is just a rough translation in Westron. The Elvish is so much better." And you think really talking because clearly you wrote this in english you didn't write this in english because there's no there's no way if you try to translate this there's no way that you get something so flawlessly melodic right i think there are a couple of instances uh, of that where you get poems that clearly were composed by tolkien in english um but you're meant to believe that there's an original elvish version out there that's more beautiful and um but it's it's wonderful you know you just are left to imagine what this beautiful, this more beautiful Elvish version is. I mean, the English version is so wonderful itself. And then, oh, there's an even deeper, more wonderful version. We, we get very little insights into the, most of the references to Elvish beauty. It's almost like it's more beautiful than what you're reading here. It's more wonderful than what we're describing here, you know? Yeah. And um, so it's, it's beyond little, description. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that, so this scene, it is cut. Um, from the theatrical edition. I'm of two minds of this, uh, about this. So Peter Jackson obviously made a decision to try and play up Arwen's role. You know, yes. I, 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 I think that's a very justifiable decision. I'm on board with that. Um, yeah. You know, let's get a, a female character who is, of course, important to, to the story, but Tolkien relegates her plot lines to the appendices, but they are there. So, you know, Jackson's saying, let's pull that out of the appendices and make it part of the primary plot. And let's let's play up this subplot with Aragorn, you know, and make that arc more present in the story. So he makes that deliberate mm-hmm. decision. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can talk about whether it's good or bad. I think I, I, I like it. Um, this scene is very important then to supporting that plot line because it establishes Varian in a subtle way, uh, the same way that it, it is subtly there in the books, um, references to his the, the difficult choices that Aragorn is going to have to make. He wants to be with Arwen, but he can't be the, the whole mortal immortal tension there. Um, you don't understand it at first, but it tells you that there's something going on the way that Eric, uh, Viggo Mortensen delivers those lines to that sort of sadness. And Frodo says, you know, well, what happened to her? And he said, she died, you know, and, and you mm-hmm. just really feel like there's something important there. And it tees up a lot of the rest of the, the plot line between Aragorn and Arwen cutting that scene. I think 
undercuts or makes that whole plotline a little less effective. A lot of people don't like the way it was executed in the theatrical edition. And I think that cutting this scene is sort of a reason for that. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think, yeah, I think there are logistical reasons why they cut that scene, but I think it works a lot better with that scene in. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that it's okay and that the Midgewater Marshes is, is is sort of expendable. We, I think the only purpose it really, really serves in the books is that they're going through a lot of hardships and it's a gritty journey and it's a difficult, unglamorous journey. Um, so, and I do think the relationship is very well developed in the film between Aragorn and Arwen. So, you know, it's not, it's not a huge major loss. Hmm, okay. So you... Um, you're, I don't think it's... You have a different opinion there. Yeah, I have a different opinion. I'm okay with it uh, because it is so brief. Right. Um, well, so when I said that I'm of two minds, uh, you know, I do think that notwithstanding everything I just said about its importance to the Aragorn-Arwen plotline, just the pacing of the scenes, I, I don't think it fits. I think that the scenes sort of flow a lot better um, if you take it out because it really slows things down and it doesn't seem to fit the pacing of where everything else is, is going. Um, it's It kind of feels like almost a random insertion. Aragorn sitting there, he's singing and they're sleeping. It's like, what? why are we Why are we seeing, seeing this? And it's breaking up, not the action, there's not action, but there is momentum that has been developed. You know, they're fleeing the prancing pony. They're in the wild with someone that they don't necessarily trust. Um, they still don't necessarily trust Aragorn. And yet now they're jamming in this scene where they're kind of napping and Aragorn singing and you're just going like, you know, why, why is this in here? So, <laughs> but, the, but this is a, this is a really nice character moment though. It's, it's a moment where That's we, true. where we, it's the first moment where we get a sense that there is more to Aragorn than we, we've, you know, might've been led to believe when we first meet him in the pub. Um, and... Yeah. You know what? This scene is for us. Hardcore fans is the truth. Mm. Mm. This is not for the theatrical people in the theater. This is for us. I, I, I do no way, man. I think (laughs) I, okay. I'm willing to admit that there are hardcore fans. They won't have the same resonance. They don't know Baron and Luthien. If I were to ask any person like, you know, even family members, what's Baron and Luthien? What's this song? It would have absolutely zero. They would have, but I think for the the same reason that all of those little glimpses of the larger world are very effective in the books, even though we don't know what they mean. No, no, no. I mean, for any book reader, you read the book, you see those glimpses, and it it For opens the up the world readers, and it makes not it everybody's enjoyable. A book reader. I think it has the same effect in the film. You know, having these little glimpses into a larger world. Um, you know, if you enjoy the movies, as long as you enjoy the movies, it's going to add depth that you, another layer that you can peel back on a rewatch. Um, but if it's too long, again, you're going to run into the time right. element. I see why right, they cut right. it. I see why it's on the chopping block because it 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 doesn't. It's not uh, furthering the plot in a significant way, in a significant mm. enough way that right. it had to be. It had to be on the chopping block. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 yes, you can definitely see why it's cut because it is definitely just a character moment and nothing else. It doesn't add anything to the plot, uh, really. It's just. But then you lose the character moment, and right. Uh, it, and then subsequent scenes and Aragorn's character development and the Arwen and love story just doesn't have the same doesn't have the same feeling, right? Yes. And speaking of action-driven scenes, let's get into the spoiling of Isengard, a fantastic scene, albeit brief. So the film cuts to Saruman and his nasty long nails communicating. <laughs> With Sauron through the Palantir. The power of Isengard 
Sauron, Lord of the Earth. As Sauron commands him to build me an army worthy of Mordor. And the orcs proceed to fell ancient trees whose roots go deep. The trees are strong, my lord. Their roots go deep. Rip them all down. Gandalf wakes in the rain on the top of Orthanc and surveys the scene where the orcs are being commanded to rip them all down. So this scene, it's actually so brief, but the destruction of the natural world and Saruman, you know, taking orders from Sauron. It's very powerful in establishing that the enemy is build is truly up to no good and getting ready. And um, it sets up the threat really nicely and the destruction of the trees, ripping down of the trees. You like feel that in your soul somehow mm. there's that one there's that one shot of the tree coming down and you get a brilliant um moment of sound editing there mm. where you get this sort of crunching noise where the tree you can almost feel it dying um yes. yeah ripping up the roots yeah there's something tragic about it right right well yeah. and, the, and this the powerful theme that that comes in isn't it the da 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 dun dun? Yeah. Oh yeah. Love that. Love that theme that comes in. So good. But I love this. You mentioned it. This opening shot of Saruman, you know, working with the Palantir and his fingers are it's like a shot out of like a nineteen fifties Dracula type of, of movie, which Christopher that, Lee was in those types of movies. So oh, like he, yes. he does it perfectly. <laughs> he he was born to play Saruman. Perfect yeah. carving. Perfect. Yeah. Um and yeah, he's 13. That shot is very much Peter Jackson horror movie, isn't it? It is like, it is that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so creepy. I think I think that these scenes um, are part of, um, they exemplify the simplification of Saruman's character a little bit from the books. So in the books, there's a little bit more nuance to his motivation. You know, Saruman is filled with pride. He wants to raise himself above Sauron, ultimately, you know, and... Um, he he plays to Sauron. He, he's telling himself that he's playing to Sauron like he's going to be a subordinate, but he has designs to overcome Sauron. And he would never, Saruman would never tell his own orcs, the Urukai, the people under his command, that he is subservient to Sauron. And so we get this little mention, uh, you know, the orc comes in and says, what orders from Sauron, my lord? Um, I don't think the Saruman's orcs would think or know that Saruman is taking orders from Sauron. I just don't think that Saruman would tell them that. But uh, Peter Jackson sort of streamlines that, takes that out and just says, Saruman is Sauron's lackey now. And so they're all kind of part of the same threat. Um, So it it takes out some of the nuances, which are kind of interesting. We know like behind the scenes in the, the, the tale of years that Saruman has some interesting interactions with the Nazgul. He's trying to, you know, he tries to trick the Nazgul because Saruman wants to make sure he gets the ring himself. Um, Saruman's agents um, are getting converted by the Nazgul who sort of take them over. So there's all, Saruman is actually kind of his own free agent. He's trying to do his own thing. um, And he's not fully under Sauron's sway, or at least he thinks he's not. That's a good point. And he's corrupted by ambition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Ambition plays such a major role in in Saruman's, um, in the fall of Saruman, is that he wants power. That's his motivation. Um, but we can't necessarily get into those subtleties in the movie the way mm. we do in the book. 
So it does just come off that he is Sauron's lackey, as you said. Yeah. And he, we also um, are introduced to Saruman as a maker as well, because he try he builds his own, uh, sorry, he mm. forges his own ring as well. Right. Um, in, in the scene in the book, which we don't get here. And, um, and I've never looked for is, that. Is it, is there any, um, like, you know, on his hand, is there ever a ring? If you look for it, I've never looked for it. No, I've never looked for it either. I don't think, I mean, we get that close up shot of his dirty nails. And <laughs> I don't remember a ring on his finger. So right, I don't think so. No. Um, and he but, becomes Saruman of many colors. And Gandalf talks about how it's, you've departed from wisdom. If you've, you know, split something up to try to, I can't remember how the, well, how the line is in the book exactly, but. But it's a big, it's a, it's a big, it's a big Tolkienian theme of, um, you know, it being dangerous to be too much of a, of a maker and to be a create, a sub creator, um, yeah, which is kind yeah. of, kind of absent from, from the movie version. But this is a good time to remind people that both Saruman and Sauron were originally uh, Meyer of Aule. They're sort of students of Aule, who is the Valar, of, you know, the maker. Um, and so they both have this sort of predisposition towards making things, inventing, building, um, which you can kind of see how they might end up in the same place because as you pointed out, being a maker, being a sub creator, um, there is an inherent danger in that because you start to covet the things that you make and, um, or, you know, you make things to be subservient to you. Impure feelings are introduced. Now, Aule manages to dodge that. He has a very pure spirit. He wants to make things just to beautify the world. Um, but some of his students sort of get corrupted uh, along the way because they are, you know, jealously guarding the things of their own creation. And Saruman is a part of that. And Sauron is, you know, he's on that same path as his former master Melkor, and he's he's on that same self-destructive path. And so is Saruman, and he's just a step behind Sauron in that process of that step towards nihilism. Right. Right. So, um, so one, one last thing before we move on from these scenes is I think that it's a, it is a very effective scene in terms of cutting back and forth and always reminding us that Saruman is out there. There's a threat, um, coming from Saruman, which, and I always want to point this out every time we see it, um, in the books for most of the fellowship of the ring, the, plot stays with Frodo, right? We never cut away from Frodo. So we know this stuff is going on between Gandalf and Saruman um, from time to time, but we don't learn about it till the Council of Elrond. We're sort of, we're told about it retrospectively when Gandalf tells everybody where he's been and why he couldn't make it. We don't know what's going on before then um, because sort of the the shot, the perspective is always sticking with Frodo. And so he's he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where Gandalf is. He's bewildered and so are we. Um, and that is the storytelling style that Tolkien employs in the books which gives sort of one, one type of experience. In the movies, Jackson says, I'm going to put it all out there. The audience is going to know all the different plot lines that are going on. I'm going to keep them in the loop, tell everything chronologically. And so he's cutting back and forth between mm-hmm. these different plot lines. And he continues to do that through the Two Towers and the Return of the King. So it's, it's a very different storytelling style. Um, there are pros and cons to it. There are things that are lost I, because, I, because you know what's going on. Um, you're less confused, you're less bewildered, which is a a sense in the audience that Tolkien was trying to create, I think. But the benefit is, I think it creates its own type of suspense. You see this building, growing fear, this growing danger, and you, 
it culminates in the final battle with the Urukai. You're not totally surprised about the Urukai coming in and having a fight at the end. You kind of see it coming and you understand what's going on. So there are, are pros and cons, but I just always like to point out that difference because it's a very different uh, storytelling style that Jackson employs. What we do lose as well is the scene in the book where um, Frodo has a dream. He dreams about Gandalf on top of all yeah. Um And then... And then he tells Gandalf in the Council of Elrond later on, and Gandalf is is one of the very few moments when we see Gandalf like completely shocked and speechless in the books, which yeah. you know, I think is a lovely moment in the books. But I don't think it would have worked as as well on screen. Um, no, but I I do love that we get a couple of those right, like Frodo having a vision. He has the vision of um, like the sea, right, from the, the yeah. tower from the sea early on, and then he has this vision of of Gandalf. Um, and I always, I never really understood what was going on, but it just seemed almost religious. You know, there, there's some sort of mm. religious, deep cosmological connection that's going on in the background. And as a reader, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I don't understand what's going on here. I don't know how he can have visions. And it's never really explained in the Lord of the Rings proper. Um, but it just gives the, re- it gave me such a sense that there's, wow, there's just this big, big world here that I don't understand. And it's kind of beautiful. So one thing I wanted to ask, you guys about before we get into the weather top scene in in the books in the movie rather in that scene that was cut from the extended edition uh where sam says to the the, the hobbits while they're sort of walking through the, the wilderness he says um you know but where's he taking us because they're debating whether or not aragorn's to be trusting says where's where's he taking us hmm. and um aragorn says to rivendell master gamgee so i want to use this opportunity to bring up his use of the phrase Master Gamgee. Peter Jackson basically cut out any of the class elements that, that are seen in, in the in the story, you know, um, Frodo being the master and Sam being his sort of his, his servant. All that's kind of cut out and not explored. And I understand why they wanted to cut it out. Maybe it just mm-hmm. doesn't land with a modern audience and it, it, it maybe it muddies the water. But in in the books, Sam isn't called Master Gamgee or Master Samwise until the very end of the novel, I, I believe. Um, and I think it's Aragorn that uses the phrase. Um, I think he uses it once ironically earlier, but he uses it genuinely near the end of the novel. And it is sort of an important mark of Sam's growth, um, you know, his growth over the course of the adventure. So that by the end of the story, he is Master Gamgee. Um, you know, all of that nuance is taken out of the movies, but I, I just wanted to use the the opportunity, the fact that Aragorn does use that phrase in this scene to remark upon that. And um, I'm just curious what your guys' thoughts about are about that whole change and, and the loss of the class elements and class discussion that Tolkien does have in there, but that Jackson takes out. I mean, I think it's very American. This is, uh, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but Americans are so allergic to class and (laughs) and notions of hierarchy. We like to imagine Um, that we are, at least. We like to imagine Mm. that we are. On paper, we are, if not in practice. (laughs) And so I think, I don't know for sure, but if they were bearing in mind that this would be a largely American audience, um, then... You know, it maybe just doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same relevance or resonance that it would to maybe a British person. I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, times have changed. Britain isn't, I don't live in the Britain that Tolkien lived in. And um, 
yeah, I, I read uh, the class elements of the Lord of the Rings in a different way than readers in the 1950s would have done. Um, the The relationship between Frodo and Sam in the books is very much based on Tolkien's experience in the First World War of his um, relationship with the serving men in the in the armed forces. He was an officer. He was trained as an officer mm-hmm. from the time that he entered the army and. Um, he had these close personal relationships with men who were from different, a different class than him. And that was his first experience in life of that kind of relationship. So he's exploring, he definitely is exploring the class element in that relationship between Frodo and Sam. And this, there's nothing wrong with the fact that Tolkien is exploring that because that is, that is part of British culture. Um, it's part of many cultures around the world. Um, mm-hmm. the, the hobbits of course are extremely British. <laughs> they, right. are ex- they are basically English, they're 19th century English people, um, transposed into this mythic world. You know, they have, they have, uh, grandfather clocks and they, <laughs> you know, they have, they have smoke, they smoke, um, tobacco through a pipe. They are 19th century English gentlemen. Um, in the movies, with, that is absent, particularly with Merry and Pippin. Merry and Pippin in the movies um, are just kind of, as we would say in England, they're kind of like the village idiot. They are just, they're these kind of, I mean, they're a comic relief character. Yeah. Um, uh, both of them are. People talk about the the pippinification of Merry. <laughs> I can't uh-huh. say that word because it's a made up word. Uh, you know, where Mary is almost like a comic relief character and the two of them are a duo in that way. Right, right. Um, so, it, yeah, in in the books, Mary and Pippin are kind of these foppish nobles who are also very immature and not as worldly as Frodo is or not as wise as Sam is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, I think, you know, the Mary and Pippin characters is where, is where that... Um, element is most absent compared right. to the book portrayal um but yeah that's a really really good catch about um master samwise i've never actually really thought about that but that i mean that title is important to the way that the hobbits address each other right in the books right. establishes that hierarchy and to be clear I, I love the way that tolkien incorporates and explores those themes in in the book i mean sam is you know i guess a representative of the I guess the more servant class, but he is also the hero hero. I mean, Tolkien considered him a hero or the primary hero of the tale. And, you know, throughout, even though his, his dialogue and his statements and his thoughts are delivered in sort of a rustic fashion, I think a lot of the wisdom that comes across throughout the story is surprisingly coming from Sam, or at least it surprises the other characters. Um, But Tolkien gives it to us through, through Sam's mouth. And um, so he is an, just to be clear, I don't think Tolkien is in any way um, embracing notions of superiority between one class or the other. I think that he is, you know, telling a story that exists that has a class element in it, um, but he is embracing the fact that Sam is a part of this theoretically the lower class. Um, he can be the hero, and a lot of the wisdom can come from Sam, and he is every bit the equal that these other characters are. and And I love that aspect to the story. Um, you know, even if it's taken out in the movies, fine. Um, I, I wanted to bring that up because I think it's an important part of the tale that we get in the story in the, in the book. 
This is roughly the point in the books at which we get the tale of Gilgalad told to us, and mm. we get that story from Sam. And right. there's that wonderful moment in the books where Sam starts reciting a poem which he had learnt as a child from Bilbo. Bilbo taught him to read and write, and and he did so by reciting poetry to him. Um, and so the uh, the other hobbits react to that by by being you know completely shocked and surprised that Sam has this faculty for literature and he right. knows this law um and the reader is surprised by that too because they they on the page it just comes in and you th- kind of think at this point that this was probably Aragorn reciting this and then Tolkien actually does shock you on the page by saying no this is Sam right um, so there's, there's great there's great respect for Sam as a character right from the beginning and right. and and just for how much he knows and how much he takes on board. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a good good catch. And actually, that reminds me. You know, I was reading through the um, the Hammond and Skull Reader's Companion last night to see if there are any tidbits in there that I, I don't want to mention. And actually, at that very point, um, when Sam recites that poem and says, you know, uh, you know, Master Bilbo taught it to me, Aragorn says. Oh, Bilbo must have translate, translated it from the original Elvish. I never knew that. He sort of says that to himself, but of course out loud so the hobbits can hear. And that's the first time that there's any indication to the audience or to the hobbits that Aragorn knows Bilbo. But it flies right over the head of the hobbits. They don't catch that, that this strider, this ruffian knows who Bilbo is by name um, or has ever had any experience with him. So I think that's kind of a funny little moment that uh, where the hobbits don't catch that. Aragorn's revealing that he knows Bilbo personally. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about time to get into the main event here, which is um, we're, we're getting to where Weathertop. Aragorn leads the hobbits to Weathertop, tells them they will rest there for the night. Frodo wakes to a crackling fire where Mary, Pippin, and Sam are roasting tomatoes, sausages, and nice crispy bacon. Frodo panics and stomps on the fire, yelling, put it out, you fools. We hear a shriek, and the Nazgul descend upon the hobbits with swords drawn. Brave little Samwise lunges at the Nazgul, but is quickly brushed aside, along with Merry and Pippin. Frodo instantly drops his sword and trips, falling backwards. The ring begins to call to Frodo, and he pulls it out. A wraith senses the ring and comes forward to take it. Frodo slips on the ring and sees the Nazgul in their former form, as kings with crowns, but ghostly and distorted. The main Nazgul reaches for the ring, but Frodo yanks it back, so the Nazgul stabs him in the shoulder. Aragorn returns just in time with sword drawn and fights off the wings. So Dan, I want to throw this to you to make the first comments because I, I know that you have a lot of thoughts about this scene in particular. So, you know, give it to us. Yeah, uh, we touched on this a little bit earlier on. It's the big difference between book and film here is that it's very much more of a spiritual battle in in the books. Um, as I said, it, I think that Aragorn knows what's coming. He knows that they can't avoid the Nazgul and he prepares the hobbits um, with, you know, his, his stories. And, um, and also, you know, he tells them, you know, fire is our, is our friend here. So they, he gives them torches. Um, we, <laughs> in the film, um, there's a moment where he gives them swords um, and he gives mm-hmm. them, he very conveniently happens to have four hobbit-sized swords with him, uh, which we know from the books came from the Barrow Downs. Um, 
that in the films they have to have a reason to have given swords right. and, and he's just like here you go Aragorn's got them <laughs> <laughs> um he picked them up at you know Home Depot on the way over <laughs> yeah uh well maybe there's a reason that you know happened off screen why he's got those swords uh maybe he was deliberately waiting for the hobbits and was prepared for that because um, in the in the I books think... isn't didn't Gandalf tell Aragorn to meet them there? So is that right? So Aragorn was at the Prancing Pony intending to meet the Hobbits, and so he could have in the books he could have prepared by bringing swords, even though he didn't. But that could have been mm. an option. Yeah, I, th- I don't think it's a huge problem. I think um, I think most audiences are willing to go with the conceit. Um, but it is as a book reader, you do think, huh. That was right. convenient, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, looky here. I just happen to have four swords in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I mean, another big difference between book and film here is that in the book, Aragorn deliberately draws in the Nazgul. He he almost kind of reveals himself at the top of Amon Hen, uh, Amon Sul, sorry, um, mm-hmm. at Weathertop. He goes to the top and... Uh, I, I, it's definitely Aragorn himself who actually kind of draws them in, whether it's accidental or deliberate. Um, so the the whole scene with the breakfast is absent in the books. There's nothing like that that happens in the books, right? Um, Although in the in the book, I, I was surprised to notice um, a major just sort of plot difference in the movies. Uh, the Hobbits light the fire and it's so foolish and idiotic and how could they do that? And Frodo, you know, being a little wiser than them wakes up and just instantly realizes that it's a foolish move in the book. It's actually Aragorn that says light a fire and yeah. Samwise thinks to himself and, and, you know, Aragorn says they don't like fire. So fire is our friend in the wilderness. And Samwise thinks to himself, it's also a good way to let everyone know that we're here. So it's kind of a little bit of a reversal in terms of who's responsible for lighting the fire. Yeah, it's completely, it's completely role reversal. In the books, it makes sense because Aragorn knows that they're headed for a confrontation with the Nazgul either way. And as you say, fire is their friend here. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's not armed in the books either. He's, right. he's, only, he's got Narsil. Well, he's armed is, with a broken sword. That yeah, good, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's a much more physical confrontation in the movie. And just to really paint the picture of what it is in the books... Um, they're all kind of sitting there and they get the sense of a shadowy figure sort of looming and starting to coalesce, but it really is just like a shadow. It's not, you know, like in the movies where it's literally, you can see bodies with, um, I mean, you can't see under the hoods, but you see that they're wearing robes and they have swords drawn and they have this really awesome armor that is, you know, crinkling. And every time they step, the sound design is amazing. It's like this, the, the, a timpani just booming. Um, and uh, it's very, very physical. And the way they're closing in with the swords drawn, none of that is in the books. It's just a looming shadow. And although I appreciate that there are difficulties in 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 displaying that in a visual medium, it does make it very, very different. And so in the books, the other hobbits aren't even aware really of what's going on. Um, the coalescing of the shadow, that's perceived by Frodo. He later learns, um, you know, after the interaction ends, he realizes that they didn't even know what was happening. The only thing they sensed was maybe the rushing of a shadow towards Frodo. And then all of a sudden he's prone on the ground or he disappears and then he's back and he's screaming. And so they didn't even see the Nazgul come in. It's very much, as you said, a spiritual shadowy fight. Um, Whereas in the 
in the films, you get Sam and Mary Pippin who close in to protect Frodo and the Nazgul swipe Sam aside. Somehow Sam lives like a Nazgul definitely slashed at him with a sword, definitely slashed at him with a sword and he falls over. And he's unscathed unscathed. somehow. Yeah. Can we talk about how embarrassing this moment is for Frodo? Like not his proudest moment. He falls backwards, drops his sword, like doesn't even put up a fight whatsoever. He looks a little pathetic in this scene, truth be told. And I love me some Frodo. Right. But yeah, um, but that is, I think, a major change in that in the film, Frodo looks weak and utterly defeated. um, Whereas in the, book I, there's more of a sense of his resistance he invokes varda you know mm. he, he invokes her name and it's var the invocation of varda it's the existence of the the numenorian blade from the barrow downs which i know that's been excised in the movie that but it's those two elements in addition to the fact that they're with aragorn but it's those two elements that cause the nazgul to sort of withdraw because they think to themselves okay they're invoking um varda which we hate um, we see that somehow they've stolen this blade from the Barrow Downs. So they must be more powerful. He must be more powerful than the Barrow Downs. I'm not fully in, at my my strongest. The Nazgul are not, you know, book three Nazgul, where they've been empowered by Sauron to like demonic levels. They're a little bit more powered down. So they're like, um, maybe I'm going to stab you, but then withdraw and just let this Morgul blade do its work and kill you over time. But Frodo is a little bit of a hero because he had this has this moment where he invokes Varda, and that's part of what drives off. Uh, the Nazgul, you, you don't really get that as much in the films. You do get the moment where he's he's got the ring and he he pulls it back, so you do see him resisting. You see Frodo having a little bit of strength of will, but I don't think most viewers connect the dots that that is like a huge um, spiritual victory for Frodo in resisting the pull of the Nazgul. So I, I don't know if you guys see it differently, but that's something that I noticed. That's definitely spot on. Yeah, he. Uh... He, when he calls out the name of Elbereth, that saves all of their lives in the book. It's, Aragorn makes it clear that that is the thing that drove them away um, and their fear of Elbereth. Um, also, I would actually draw a connection to much earlier on in the books where uh, they meet Gildor and Glorion, and he gives that blessing um, to Frodo as well. He gives them the blessing of Vardo, which uh, is... It's implied it's supposed to protect him in some way. Mm-hmm. Names um, him elf friend. Yes, exactly. And I think that that is that is also there's a connection there between that moment and this and this one where he calls that out. I think I think that helps save them too. Right. Contrast that with the film where Aragorn is the one who saves the day through a literal sword mm. fight where he somehow fights off several of the Nazgul, which just kind of, I think, undermines them as a threat a little bit, that Aragorn's able to fight them all off all by himself. And of course, there's that ridiculous moment where he's he's fought all of them off but one, and mm-hmm. he throws a torch into the Nazgul's head, and he, you know he, he runs off the precipice of Weathertop screaming, it's like this. All right, that was a little bit jump the shark for me. You, you can see why they did that, though, because they've only just introduced Aragorn at this point, and right, you kind right. of need to give him a big hero moment to introduce That's that, right. But... We need to see him as a protagonist and a, the studly hero that he is. <laughs> so, Dan, are you familiar with the Zimmerman script that Tolkien ripped apart? So there's, the, I think the very first proposed script came from a guy whose last name was Zimmerman. I forget his first name. Um, Tolkien reviewed the script and wrote a letter just 
tearing it to shreds. He, he wrote the letter to his publisher. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the script. I haven't read the script, but I, ha- I do know the letter that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, I haven't read the script either. I'm not sure if it's available somewhere, um, uh, if it's been published. I know that there's physical copies you can go inspect, but um, I, I did check out that letter to see if there's any reference to the scene and how it was depicted and if Tolkien had anything to say. And apparently Zimmerman made a similar change as Jackson, making this conflict much more physical uh, and action-oriented. And Tolkien didn't like that. So he says, and this is um, paragraph 10 of this really long letter, Strider does not whip out a sword in the book. Naturally not. His sword was broken. Its elvish light is another false anticipation of the reforged Andrew. Anticipation is one of Z's chief faults. Chief faults. He refers to Zimmerman as Z. Why then make him do so here in a contest that was explicitly not fought with weapons? So Tolkien had an objection to transforming this spiritual battle, as you called it, Dan, to a physical one. Again, like, again, how do you depict a spiritual battle? Like, they're always going to run into this with a film version of this. You can't have it all. And I, I think getting too abstract is just not going to work. I like the changes. I think the changes work. I think Aragorn is clearly a hero. And that we get that a little bit earlier in the films is okay. Well, you ask a good question. And Tolkien has an answer a little later in the, in the same letter. He says, um, I can see that there are certain difficulties in representing a dark scene, but they are not insuperable. A scene of gloom lit by a small red fire with the wraith slowly approaching as darker shadows until the moment when Frodo puts on the ring and the king steps forward revealed, which seemed to me far more impressive than yet one more scene of screams and rather meaningless slashings. So asked and answered no. by the professor himself. <laughs> All right. I mean, how do you argue with it? It's Tolkien himself. <laughs> But actually, I'll argue with the professor. I kind of agree with you guys. I think it makes, you know, all, for all the reasons you said, I do think it is sensible. Um, you know, it, it's it's an area where reasonable minds can differ. And I think it is an effective scene. I mean, certainly it is. It is scary. I mean, these are the Nazgul are represented in a very scary fashion with, you know, their armor and the way that they close in. I mean, it's scary. It's very scary. So I think And you know, a lot of what happens is straight from the book. The fact that they're moving through the mist and surrounding Weathertop, that's straight from the book. Yeah, yeah the timeline's yeah. a mm-hmm. little bit a little bit different. There's different elements. They did preserve a lot of what is in the book. They just had to speed things up. And exclude some things. So it's getting really nitpicky to me to say, mm-hmm. to take to take umbrage with something like that. That to me is like a small change that really works. And that keeps the tension on it. That keeps, keeps it suspenseful and moving and action-based. Picking nits is all that we do here on Watch Party. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Agreed. I, I think we've covered a, a lot of ground. And I think now's a good place to, to stop. Oh, yes, I think so. Other than the fact that Michael, Michael and I are in a huge debate about uh, about the character of Frodo and Elijah Wood, and I'd like to point out to Michael <laughs> that the face that we get after Frodo is stabbed is the only time he makes that face in the whole series, and it's you see the anguish depicted on his face. You see, 
you know, the shock, you get all this. So bravo, Elijah Wood. Um, I think this is a real shining moment for him when he is stabbed by the Morgul blade. So this this debate, um, Dan, that Jen's referencing. <laughs> goes back along. You're not going to. Yeah. I, you know, I, in a prior episode, I, you know, suffered from foot and mouth syndrome. And I made the comment that of the <laughs> actors in the film, Elijah Wood's portrayal of Frodo is probably among my Listen. least favorite. And I stand Elijah Wood. So now I have to feel like I have to f- defend him, you know, the rest of the time. So I'm going to go hard for, uh, for my guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit on the fence here and say that <laughs> I can see where both of you are coming from because oh. I I, re- I really like Elijah Wood's acting chops. I think mm-hmm. he's a good actor. Um, I think, mm-hmm. I think in terms of the script, um, I think, I think he, he really actually nailed the character that the screenwriters wrote. Um, I personally, for me, I would have gone with an older actor, mm, right? Because I, he's not how I imagine Frodo. Um, Frodo is supposed to be vis- like a vis- older. visually, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's supposed to be he's supposed to be a generation older than his than his other Hobbit companions, and right. I think he actually seems like the youngest of the. Well, maybe not younger than Pippin, but 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 I think he. he yeah, there's this almost childlike quality to him. Um, I love that. Well, Elijah Wood's got this eternally youthful different. face. I mean, yes, such a youthful mm. face. But oh, let me still ask you as this. well. Yeah, he's aged yeah. Am- amazingly well. Right, right. <laughs> oh yeah, he's well, a beautiful man. And I gotta say, I made that comment. Some I had that impression in my head, and I also <laughs> have always liked Elijah Wood's acting, but for some reason, in these films, like. I didn't love his accent, which I could. Did his accent through. bother you, Dan? The, the resident Brit here. Did you? Does his accent bother you? You think it's not? Uh, his, ac- his accent is not as good as Sean Astin's is. Definitely not. Yeah. Really? I thought Sean Astin's wasn't super consistent, but. Mm. But Dan knows. Dan knows. So I'll take that one. Yeah. For well, okay. The- <laughs> <laughs> the, and also, his pronunciation of Elvish uh, is lacks a little bit. I think sometimes, which you know, not everybody can. Can do Elvish. Right, I, I right. certainly. I remember when I first started making videos on YouTube, and I started saying some of these words that I'd never said aloud before. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and and then looking back, I think, oh god, I, I've messed up so, so many words up here. Because as a content creator, you start learning how how to pronounce things properly. Right. Right. That's been actually um, like uh, area. <laughs> where I'm always a little bit bashful on here because I'm sure I'm mispronouncing things all the time. So I, every time I have to pronounce an Elvish word or I, there's like a little PSA that goes out that I don't, <laughs> if I'm mispronouncing it, don't yell at me. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to Elijah Wood there. Um, you know, when he says Mordor instead of Mordor. Right, like, right. Like, Mordor. like, like Christopher Lee says. You gotta because, roll that because, R. Because yeah. Christopher Lee was reading Tolkien every year for right. decades before he played this. Pop. We have to bear in mind he was a teenager. Mm. Can you believe that? He was right. a teenager when he started that that just blows my mind. Yeah. Who who met Tolkien as well. He met Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, Amazing. that's the coolest thing. Um but I got to walk back my opinion a little bit, you know, having rewatched I'm rewatching things with a different light. I, you know, I'm finding that what the things that bothered me about Elijah Wood's performance, I mean, I suppose they're still there, but I really actually like a lot of what he does and he is doing a very good job. So I think maybe my comments up front were a little harsh and they're being cured by a a more deliberate and careful rewatch. Amen to that. And I think that's a good note to end on. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. We've had a blast with you. And how can folks watch or listen to your content? 
Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, uh, I'm Voice of Geekdom on YouTube, um, so Google me. Um, I'm yeah, that's that's my channel. I am for, at Voice of Geek on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, etc. But yeah, uh, that's that's all I can say on that. Really, um, as I said at the start of the show, I do a lot of Silmarillion content. Uh, I have a series that I'm doing on Numenor. Um, so fans of the fans of the forthcoming adaptation by Amazon Prime Studios will be interested in that series potentially. Uh, a podcast as well on a YouTube visual format. Um, I recently I've had uh, Carl Hostetter, the editor of the new um, Tolkien book, on. Yeah. So that that was my most recent video as of time of recording. What a great interview! What a great interview for yeah, you. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was really good uh, get for the channel, uh, yeah. small channel like mine. So, well, and I'll just say to our listeners that um, just really recommend that you go check out Dan's channel, Voice of Geekdom. Mm-hmm. It it is great. You know, we've watched plenty of your videos. We really appreciate the quality of the oh, content yeah. you're putting on. And I think for anybody who um, is looking to get a little bit educated on the the backstory of what will be depicted in the upcoming adaptation, Voice of Geekdom's channel is the the way to go. So. Dan, thanks again. We've loved having you. We'll definitely be asking you to come back and join us again sometime in the future. That's going to conclude this episode of Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime. Uh, To our fans, if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, subscribe, share us with another Tolkien fan in your life or with someone you think might become a Tolkien fan if only they found the right podcast. You can find us on Twitter at LOTR Party, on Instagram at LOTR on Prime, on Facebook, and you can email us at watchparty.com lotr at gmail.com we would love to hear from you join us next week for another episode of watch party lord of the rings on prime all right dan we've been going for a little while probably a little longer than we meant to but um you down for just a few more minutes to to do a fun little gray havens segment sure uh yeah yeah, I don't know what you have in mind for that, but uh, yeah. I, terribly embarrassing activities. That's what we have in mind. <laughs> well, I actually, so you are, Dan, you are the self-proclaimed voice of geekdom. So how mm. do you define your particular breed of geek and are there other so-called geeky things that you're into other than Lord of the Rings? Hmm. Um, I mean, are you, are you asking what else I'm into that's geeky? Yeah, um, for sure. So I, I have ambitions to do Star Trek content because Ooh. Star Trek is the other big fandom thing that I'm very, very into and that has been a lifelong pillar of my geeky existence. Um, so I grew up with that. Which is your favorite? What do you think of... Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, my favorite show now is Star Trek Deep Space Nine because it's the best written show with the best continuity and the the best character growth over the course of the seven seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's lots of Star Trek content coming out, um, which is what kind of draws me to it as a content creator, other than the fact that I am very interested in it. Um, and I think there aren't really that many great Star Trek channels. There's a few good ones that I really enjoy, but but I think there's a gap in the market for, for more Star Trek content out there. So um what other star trek material is coming out these days uh so you've got star trek discovery which is uh you know it's kind of 
the big kind of mainstay that's been around for a few years now, um, opinions vary on it dramatically. There are a bunch of content creators who have gotten rich from just kind of uh, <laughs> criticizing it and um, destroying it. Mm. And and then there are people who love it. It's, it divides opinion. Um, there's the new Picard um, series, which is coming out next year, which uh, we've just had a trailer for it yesterday, actually. Um, so there's uh, a bunch of next generation characters that are coming back, legacy characters. The Borg Queen is coming back. Uh, wow. Q is coming back for season two of Picard. So I'm excited about that. I'm I'm tempted to do some content on that, actually, in the build up to that. Because oh, you should. As I, um, thing is, <laughs> if you know YouTube and you know that it, you, you've focused on one particular thing and you've tried to build a, a fan base for yourself for one particular property, you know that if you start doing something else, you'll get people unsubscribing. That's just the way it works. Right, so you probably I'm, have to have I'm, a separate channel I'm, devoted to it. Yeah, potentially. I'm nervous about trying to do other things in the future. Mm-hmm. I have been told by other bigger influencers that um, that it's easier to start branching out more when you're smaller, actually. Okay, so I have a confession to make. Hmm. I've never, ever watched anything related to Star Trek. Oh, wow. Ever. And I want you, Dan, to convince me. Why should I watch it? Why is it like I don't know why I have a blind spot or like a prejudice towards it. It doesn't make sense because I'm not averse to the sci-fi genre at all. I've read Dune. Mm-hmm. I've dabbled in it a little. I like Star Wars. Why is Star? What what is it that you like about Star Trek? Like what? Why should I get into it? Is well, it something Dune and Star Wars, of course, go hand in hand. I mean, George Lucas was very much inspired by Dune, so that makes all the sense in the world. Um, Star Trek, I think, is a little bit more, it tries to be, anyway, a little bit more cerebral. It, it tries to examine themes that um, are a little bit allegorical, um, Ooh, which is a and little... See, I like that. It, that's I a little like bit a antithetical to Tolkien, of course. Right, so, right. I mean, Tolkien fans that are listening to this, that might not appeal. Um, mm. But I, I think it was really interesting what Gene Roddenberry tried to attempt to do um, by bringing these kind of classic hero stories where um, he was inspired by um, Horatio Hornblower and kind of nautical adventures and, and that sort of thing. But also he was picking on uh, sociological issues that were going on at the time in the 60s. He was ex- he was examining themes of racism and prejudice that were going on and social thing themes um, through his writing. So... I find that quite compelling. Um, yeah, and that. And, and where should I, where should I start if I were going to start? Where would you recommend? Because I'd, I don't know why I have a block there. I think that in my mind it's like very cheesy. But I, yeah. I'm. This is my own bias. I'm not averse to trying it out. I'll try anything once. No, it's, so it is cheesy. Absolutely, it is, is cheesy. cheesy. You're, okay, you're see, that wrong. might be a problem. <laughs> not all of it's cheesy. Some are more cheesy than It might than be others. a problem for yeah. me if it's um, cheesy. Sorry, somebody's just coming in the room. Um, I'm wrapping up, so can you wait like 10, 20 minutes? Yay! Is that okay? Okay, no worries. Thanks. Okay. Sorry, guys, I, housemate. So. Yeah, no problem. No problem. No problem. I'm in my housemate's um, art studio here. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Very <laughs> nice. Um, she's... Um, I should have actually got her on to make an appearance, actually, <laughs> as a missed opportunity. She's uh, she actually you mentioned Star Wars. She worked on the Star Wars movies on the new what? sequels because she does wow. she does she does prosthetics for um, cool. TV and film. Oh, that's awesome! You guys must have a great time at Halloween. 
I'm hoping that she gets a role on the Lord of the Rings on Prime show. What the? Shut the front door. Because they're they're moving it to the UK. They moved production to the UK. They're going to be filming at Pinewood Studios in West London. Um, I don't know whether she will or not. There's no reason to think that she will do. You should keep this all in, actually. Um, Yeah, (laughs) we we totally will. I should have brought her on to chat. Next um, time. We'd love to have you back. So next time. Yeah, sorry, I've I've totally lost my train of so thought. So where should she um, start? Where, she where should in. I start if I'm just entering into this world? What do you recommend to um, dip my toe? I want to dip my toe in the Star Trek pool, just a little toe. <laughs> I would probably start with the movies because I, I think the original series Star Trek is very dated. It's very very dated. Um, the sets okay. the sets look cheap and bad, which they were even for the time. And now they're you know fifty years old, they look particularly cheap and bad. Mm-hmm. But I would start with the movies. Start with the second okay. movie because the first movie is terrible. Um, the second movie is Wrath of Khan, which is I think is one of the best movies of all time. Okay, um, Wrath of Khan. We'll discuss this on the next episode too because we like to discuss what we're watching. So you're gonna you're gonna go party. watch it and we'll do an update. I'll watch it. I'll watch. It. I will try anything. That's a thing. I, it is yeah, still Wrath of cheesy, Khan though. is a legitimately good movie. Wrath oh, yeah. of Khan. Okay. I think it's up there with Empire Strikes Back. I think it, I think it holds up Ooh, to that. Oh, okay. Personally. I like the Empire Strikes Back, so <laughs> that's setting the bar pretty high. We'll see. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll keep an eye out. Uh, you know, count us as fans of uh, any Star Trek content that you create, and especially Jen, who's going to need you to hold her hand through the Star <laughs> Trek universe. I, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm making true. no promises about doing Star Trek content. Oh, yeah, I don't sure. know whether I'll get have the time for it. I barely have the time for for um for lord of the rings at the moment um you asked me about my geeky identity i'm also i'm a games developer as well um, oh cool so I, so I would put that in more in nerd category than geek category but maybe they all overlap cutting a fine line yeah i i i think i'm both i think there's a I think there's a Venn diagram of geek and nerd which is just like one concentric circle um, it's not binary no. <laughs> <laughs> so um i'm kind of an expert a video game player um i have played mario many times super mario mario 3 no I, <laughs> that's about the extent of my video game actually let me ask you that where does mario stack up in your view in the pantheon of video games the history of video games how does it rank is it it's foundational yeah I'll well i that. imagine it as being but i don't know <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's absolutely foundational. It's um, the archetypal platformer game, and platform games are you know the bread and butter of the video game as a genre. Is yeah, it's you can't say much more than that, really. I mean, Mario is definitely. <laughs> I, I mean, it's not one of my favorite games. I have to say, you know, I mean, I played Mario as a kid, but it's not like something i obsess about now right, um right. i i love rpg games because i'm a fantasy nerd and uh-huh. uh, i love i love dungeons and dragons that's that's my connection to video games that's where i became impassioned about video games do you have any D games going at the moment uh yes i actually do yeah i play a I play a, D&D, a fifth edition D game at the moment i'm playing a tiefling rogue um so i i love D. i haven't played in a little while um but for like uh five years i had a running like a consistent D game 
game going with um, a bunch of my friends from law school. So we all graduated law school. We wanted to stay in touch, find a reason to hang out regularly. And none of us, except for one, had played D&D before. We, we hadn't played D&D, but we all liked fantasy and stuff like this. So we said, let's do a D&D game. Let's learn how to do it and let's have fun. And it is it was just so much fun, um, a great excuse to get together. And we got really, really into it. Um, obviously, we haven't been playing lately in person with uh, the pandemic and everything. It's been a little while, but uh, um, that was so much fun. I think we can agree that the community aspects of all of these things are just the the big draw, right? Like the collaborative yeah. and community aspects of these things. Right. Um, and, and speaking of that, we're so happy to build this community out and have connected with you, Dan. And thank you so much. And we hope to, to talk to you soon and uh, keep in touch. And I'm very much looking forward to the working on the Silmarillion content with you. I can't wait. Yeah, definitely. I, I've been drawing up the script already, so I'll have that to you probably tomorrow.